0: I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. This week, we've got a bit of a special episode with a pair of interviews. First up, I speak with Kim Masters, an editor-at-large at The Hollywood Reporter, to talk about her reporting on the film industry during the age of Me Too. Masters has published several features on some of the biggest names in Hollywood who have been involved in sexual harassment and sexual assault, but she talks about the struggle she had getting that reporting published initially. And Meg, you used this snowpocalypse to snag an interview we've been chasing for a while.
1: Yeah, I got to speak to one of my personal journalism heroes, Susan Orlean. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since the early 90s and was in town for an event at the Columbia Journalism School. So I convinced her to join us here in the studio where we talked about her process, finding stories, and all of that good stuff.
0: Yeah, it's a great conversation we've got coming in the second half of the episode. But first, here's my conversation with Kim Masters. You've been one of the leading reporters on issues of sexual harassment and abuse in Hollywood. And I wanted to take you back to the days before October 5th, when those first reports came out. You talked about this in a great CJR piece you wrote, the trouble you had getting reporting about Roy Price, the Amazon studio had published, calling it, quote, one of the most difficult chapters in my decades-long career in journalism. So what were those challenges before October?
2: Well, I had, been, I had started reporting on the Roy Price Amazon studio story well before October, probably in March or early in 2017. And, you know, a source came to me with a lot of information and I did what I would normally do, which is to follow the story. And it was a very sensitive thing for, in that a lot of people who were sources depended on Amazon Studios for their livelihood. So going on the record was something that would have cost them Possibly, you know, their jobs or, or important business. So, my feeling was, you know, that that I had enough with the sourcing. I had I had enough people who were very credible, who were telling consistent story, who are eyewitnesses to certain things. That in the event of litigation. They, my sources agreed, multiple sources, to talk to my editors, talk to our lawyers, whatever was necessary. And they also agreed if there were a lawsuit, they would reveal themselves and testify truthfully about what they had seen uh, in, in terms of what Roy Price's behavior. So uh, my feeling was, you know, that this was good enough. Uh, we were there. But meanwhile, Roy Price hired Lisa Bloom and Charles Harder. And uh, in retrospect, it seems clear that he got those two lawyers from Harvey Weinstein because both of them were representing Harvey Weinstein around the same time.
0: Right. And of course, Charles Harder has been involved in litigation against numerous publications, most notably Gawker.
2: Well, yes. In the aftermath of Gawker, there was just this enormous fear about what, well, it was a combo platter of the Gawker situation, as well as the fact that Trump was, constantly harping on fake news and, you know, the media are scum. And so our lawyers and subsequent lawyers, when I tried to move the story, the problems at The Hollywood Reporter, their reaction was just what I thought was irrational fear. And I said so to them in plain, plain language. But the level of fear was so off the hook with these lawyers, and not just at The Hollywood Reporter, but several other places. So it seems
0: like the end result of all of that throughout the process was that you really had trouble finding a publisher willing to stand behind you to put the piece out there.
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, certain places were interested and passed without explaining. Uh, one of the, the first place I went to didn't explain. The second place went all the way through editing, vetting with their lawyers, and indemnifying me and telling me it was going to be published that day after all of that was completed and then pulling it and saying they didn't want to go forward because the sources weren't on the record, which was clear from the jump. Then another place told me they couldn't publish because there had already been a threat of litigation attached to the piece, and uh, and other publications had passed, and therefore it created a bad appearance. So that went on and on until I got to the information, which I was connected to by somebody in Hollywood, actually. They did, in fact, publish... uh, Small percentage. I mean, the key thing they published, and and all credit to them, was that there was an allegation involving misconduct and that there had been investigations at Amazon.
0: So after the Weinstein stories broke in the New Yorker and the New York Times, you did get to publish a more full version of that piece. And then you followed that up with other great reporting on Pixar's John Lasseter, some additional reporting on Weinstein. And what I'm interested in is if the environment that you found in reporting these stories has changed, are publishers more willing to stand behind you in pursuing these stories?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I work for The Hollywood Reporter, so it's very unusual for me to do something for another publication. Like, In fact, in the past seven years, almost eight years, I've just done one story for another publication and that was the piece for the information. Uh, So, But since then, yes, The Hollywood Reporter has been uh, a place where we've broken quite a lot of of news in this regard. And I have found that I wouldn't say that our legal department is is at all lax, but I would say that the level of completely irrational fear seems to have diminished, Uh, specifically with respect to Uh, harder. Um, You know, there was a number of instances in which he said he was going to sue this person or that person, and I think it started to emerge that, you know, instead of being this this publication killer who was going to just take down any place that he tried to take down, he was, you know, a lawyer who went around making a lot of threats and maybe got super lucky with the Hulk Hogan case, because it was this very specific set of facts.
0: Right. And you mentioned that the Hollywood Reporter has done great work, Variety, another uh, Hollywood publication, has done great work on Me Too and some of the individuals whose names have surfaced during that. Has your job changed a lot, the stuff that you cover in this era?
2: Well, it's almost, you know, I've been calling it the sexual predator beat because... In the aftermath of Harvey, we had such an onslaught of allegations coming to us. You know, we set up a tip line as other people did, uh, and and people came in by every means. You know, through the phone or through email or through the tip line, and we had our hands really, really full. Uh, and that's diminished a little bit, but uh, you know, I've been doing so many stories connected to. Allegations of misconduct or just managing people who called, and some of them we've asked to write their, you know, they've come to me, and I said, You, you can write this yourself as a first person, which a couple of people have done very effectively. But, uh, yeah, I, I had a producer call me not that long ago, and he said, You know, we, I wish you would, I really think what the work you're doing on the, Time's Up moment is really, really valuable, but I also wish you would get back to covering the industry more because, we, you know, the, your voice would be needed to cover that as well. Like, so much is going on in Hollywood. You know, you have AT&T poised, theoretically, to buy Time Warner. You have Disney now acquiring Fox. I mean, there's just tectonic shifts in Hollywood, and uh, those are the stories that demand attention too.
0: You mentioned that you had trouble getting people to go on the record in your initial Roy Price reporting. Has that changed in the last few months? Or Do you find more sources willing, now that they've seen some results from earlier reporting, willing to share their
2: names and stand behind uh, the stories that they're sharing? I think in a lot of cases, yes, but the exceptions are when the story is about someone who's still very much in power. You know, I've said many times that Harvey Weinstein was not at the peak of power when they finally became vulnerable to, you know, an expose or multiple exposés about his behavior. And there are people right now, I was just uh, before this conversation talking to a producer about a, you know, a very high-level person in the industry who, quite honestly, has gotten away with murder, but nobody will go on the record And it's incredibly frustrating because we know we know so much about the alleged behavior, but I don't have a parallel thing as I did with Amazon, where these sources are saying, I'll come forward if there's a lawsuit or and, you know, I've had already been threatened with legal action by one person that I have been focused on. And sources are not saying they'll come forward if, it, if there's a lawsuit or that, you know, they would con- consider revealing themselves. So when people are in power, it's still really, really difficult. And the other category that I'm seeing is people where the alleged perpetrators are extremely secretive about what they, they haven't done things. They've been very, very careful to kind of keep things off the radar and they've allegedly done things. But it's very hard to establish any kind of pattern or get it to a place where you could publish.
0: So it seems like, coincidentally or not, the the Me Too reporting and the Time's Up reporting trace the arc of award season, kicking off with Weinstein back in October and continuing up to revelations about Ryan Seacrest days before the red carpet at the Oscars. And then on Sunday night, you had Gary Oldman and Kobe Bryant, two men who have been accused of uh, sexual or physical abuse against women, win awards. So I'm interested in your feeling from being out there. How much has actually changed?
2: I don't think as much as needs to change by any means. At this point, I just feel that um, there is a moment of heightened consciousness. I think a lot of people who are uh, potentially bad actors in all of this are probably watching themselves right now and hoping they don't, You know, I mean, there were a couple of people who were just a click of the dial away from having their jobs vanish. You know, it's it's, uh, so I think people are probably have somewhat retreated into their corners. Some of these alleged perpetrators, but uh, I don't know that it lasts. And I think the critical thing that we felt, you know, that uh, as we cover these stories, is if you really want change, the stories, you have to keep telling the stories and hope for results. I can't explain why. Uh, you know, Gary Oldman doesn't, you know, Casey Affleck can't present at the Oscars because of harassment allegations, but Gary Oldman gets a pass. In the case of Kobe Bryant, I would just note that the guy who did the animation is one of the most highly regarded animators pretty much of this era, Glenn Keane. And so I think there may have been as much goodwill towards him as there was questions about Kobe Bryant. You know, so I think we, but we keep telling the stories. And hope for organizations like Time's Up and the commission that Kathy Kennedy has put together that's chaired by Anita Hill will have an impact.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Time's Up. And in this week's issue of The Hollywood Reporter, you have a piece titled What's Next for Time's Up? It looks at some, right. of, the, some of the growing pains um, as that mm-hmm. organization tries to turn, as you put it, a moment into a movement. So based on your reporting on that piece and, and just over the last few months, are you optimistic?
2: I wish I could say I was optimistic, but I'm not really at this point yet. I mean, I, I, I'm not giving up, but I feel like we have these moments where people are kind of galvanized, and, and there's uh, we think, well, you know, things have got to change, and then somehow it goes back to the way it was. And, and I have to say the problem of harassment and bias in this community is actually much more rampant. I mean, I knew there was some sexual harassment in Hollywood, but it's, it's incredible, the kinds of stories that we've heard. And I've just come to this feeling that some of these institutions that are the major institutions of Hollywood, certain companies or agencies that have so, such troubled cultures that I don't even know how, you know, the change is unfortunately going to be very incremental. We see the numbers not moving in terms of women or people of color, Behind the camera in executive suites, they're just not moving. And in order to really get to a place where this kind of harassment is no longer tolerated, I think women have to be far more represented in positions of power than they are now. And it's still a door that women are knocking on, and it barely opens. You know, it's just like maybe a little teeny bit ajar, but not really coming, you know, swinging open. So as long as that's the way it is, and and white men dominate and have a concentration of power and money in their hands, I don't know how change is going to happen.
0: Well, we look forward to continuing to read your reporting on all of those topics. Uh, Kim Masters, thanks. thanks so much for being here with us. My pleasure. After the break, we'll have Meg with Susan Orlean.
1: A lot of the work that you've done over the years has been aspirational and inspirational. Wow! Well, thanks. Yes, yeah. a huge compliment. Um, especially my—I oh, think my favorite piece of yours is "Figures in a Mall," which was your look at Tanya Harding's hometown, which is very relevant this past year, considering her resurgence in the media. Right. Uh, yeah, it's really. And have you seen the film? I have. Okay, well,
3: it's um, more than, oh, I won't say influenced by, but it, it takes the same perspective on the event, which is to look at the class issues that were played out in this, and actually the misperceptions of class issues, too, since Nancy Kerrigan was wrongly assumed to be this princess from an affluent family when she wasn't.
1: And so for people who have not been fortunate enough to have read the story multiple times like I have, could you (laughs) maybe summarize uh, your approach to telling Tanya Harding's story in this piece?
3: At the time I went off to do that story, the Tanya issue was huge. And she had kind of gone to ground and wasn't talking to anybody. I'm very interested often in doing stories about big news events but coming at them from a a very oblique angle. In the case of Tanya, I had lived in Portland, Oregon for a few years. I would read stories about Tanya Harding from Portland, Oregon. I knew Tanya was not from Portland, and she was from a world that, while it's not that far from Portland exists in a very different space, demographically, sociologically, economically, and I felt those stories were really missing the point about who she was by, by incorrectly identifying where she was from, and then that meant that anybody reading about her quickly associated her with Portland, which is a very different kind of place. I knew she wasn't going to talk to me, although I held out hope that maybe it would still happen. (laughs) But I also believed that I could write the story about the world from which she emerged, and that would tell you a lot about her. I went to the skating rink where she practiced. I hung out with her fan club. I... I traveled in and around Clackamas where she grew up and where she was still living at that point and tried to, to kind of dig down into a sense of what that community was like and what her life would have been like growing up there and what it might mean about her as a person finding herself in the situation she was in. I take it as a huge compliment that people thought it was very revealing about her, given that I never spoke to her, and I had some quotes from her, but it, it also kind of supported my theory that often people are very much a product of their environment and that you can learn a lot about character by looking at context.
1: And it's such a it's such a fresh and unique angle too, on on the subject. And I'm wondering, kind of broadly speaking, what is your usual process for quote finding the stories that you you seek to tell? That's a very good
3: question because I I can't always I often find myself in the middle of a story scratching my head and saying, I have to remember how I ended up doing this story. <laughs> Because I don't... First of all, I never like to write about the same thing more than once. I, I, Rather than developing a beat where I have expertise, I look at each story as a challenge. Can I learn about this subject? Can I dig in quickly and, and become really familiar and and fluent in this new subject that I'm immersing myself in? Then a story will appeal to me just as like an itch. I come across some mention of something that sticks in my head and I, I have the reaction of, oh, I love, I wonder what that's about. And it it's a really often a very idle thought that then moves quickly into thinking, I think that's a great story. It's a it begins with a natural curiosity purely personal that instantly i i feel like i can see the the way it could expand and become something more more full than this little mention that catches my eye i go on intuition there's no focus grouping on whether is this going to appeal to an audience or not I go—I I trust my passion for the story and my authentic curiosity about it and think, well, I'm really curious about it, and and I, I think if that readers will be too. In, in a way, I'm glad that I believe naively in that <laughs> and that I just have this sort of innocence of thinking, well, I'm super interested in this, and then readers will be too. But I think that's essential. It's not sufficient, but it is essential to making a story function. And and it has to be your belief that it's meaningful and that people will find in it the same interest that you have in it.
1: And like some of those topics that you've tackled have been like taxidermy and like bullfighting and like these worlds that are either unfamiliar or kind of unknown to the wider swath of the population, mm-hmm. and so I'm wondering: once you make a story choice, what comes next?
3: Generally, um, well, I I don't try to do extensive research, and in fact, I avoid doing extensive research on on the topic. I try to find the person who can teach me about it. Now that's obviously different from a profile where obviously the first thing is to spend time with the person you're mm-hmm. profiling. But if we're talking about something that's more revealing of a world, like my story about taxidermy, I have to, I then think what's an event, who's a person, who what can be my portal into this world that can also provide a a writing shape, um, you know, an event is often perfect. And in the case of my taxidermy story, there the world taxidermy championships were taking place. And, I love that that exists, by <laughs> the way. Well, that alone, I just thought, <laughs> well, this is, this is a story. The fact that this exists is a story. Yeah. <laughs> but it also gave an arc. Instead of just saying, by the way, did you know a bunch of people do taxidermy? Um, which is a very saggy, flabby kind of piece that would be very hard to make really compelling. Having an event, or if it were, if I'd shaped it around one individual taxidermist, now you start seeing some form and a way, a sneaky way that you can tell this bigger story, hey, did you know there are lots of taxidermists, without it feeling like, well, so what? Then it becomes this narrative. There's the championship and here's one competitor, here's another competitor. And while, while I have your attention, let me just tell you a little bit of the background on taxidermy and the history and a little bit about who's doing it and why they're doing it. And is it on the rise or is it disappearing as a as a craft? And then let's get back to the narrative of this heated competition to see who's going to be the best taxidermist in, uh, in the year. So you, you've got multiple time frames working together, but it's the first thing I try to do is figure out, is there a specific, concrete way in, whether it's a person or an event or something of that sort? To make this have uh, exist in time and place uh, rather than it just being an essay about taxidermy.
1: And so once you have those people, those places, those events, that research and reporting done, how do you then move into the writing process? Mm. Because that is something that I am so curious about.
3: That's the hard part, of
1: course. Um,
3: (laughs) One of the things that if you can afford having a certain amount of time before you even begin trying to write, I've never really appreciated how essential that is. And I'm happy to say that science has supported this idea that when you're working on creative work, there's a lot of very subconscious, unconscious filtering and processing that's going on. So there's a lot that's otherwise known as looking like you're not doing anything. But you don't go from typing up notes to instantly being able to tell the story. You need to begin re- reviewing it in your own head. What did I learn? What What surprised me? What did I see that I what did I not expect to see that then stuck in my head? What was n- missing that I thought I would see? Who was interesting? What's the emotional tenor of the experience? And I think you need to go over that and over it and over it and over it and just mull and think. And don't put a word down until you've given yourself some time and give yourself as much as you can afford considering that you're probably working on a deadline so that when you finally are ready to sit you're at a the second stage already you you've thought about it and the process of thinking by the way I think you want to review your notes repeatedly start seeing what sticks in your head Tell the story out loud to someone. It's a fantastic device for hearing yourself tell what... You know, don't think about it. Just if someone says, what are you working on, talk about it. And then listen to yourself and think, hmm, it's funny that I'm mentioning that Mm -hmm. and leaving out this other thing that I thought I was going to be talking about. Well, maybe... That wasn't really as interesting as this funny thing that I am mentioning now, after all. And that's the process of sorting it out. When I write, I write from the first sentence to the last. Not everybody does, and that's not a prescription. It's simply the way it's worked for me is I need to work through my lead and it it becomes a something of a microcosm for the, the rest of the piece. And so it's very important to me to work that out before I continue in the piece. And it really sets the tone. It certainly shouldn't be a miniature billboard saying what the story's about, but rather a, a come-hither to the reader and a way of saying... Come give me a second. Come here. Come look at this weird thing that I've discovered. Then it, it follows the way you would tell a story out loud, which might sound simplistic, but I think we all have innately a sense of how to pace and shape a story. We do it all the time in out loud. Um the challenge is to get that onto the page without letting all of this other stuff interfere. That that's why I emphasize the idea of talking out loud about your piece. Edit, edit, edit. You know, once things are on the page, and this is, believe me, I started by working on a typewriter with when you wanted to change something. It was a true production. You'd have to, like, get out scissors and tape and cut things up. Computers make it so easy to remove things and try it a different way and change the order and... Be hard on yourself or, or be adventurous and playful and move things around and try it different ways and always then read it out loud and see, does it make you want to hear more? And that's the baseline. Does it make you want to hear more? And if it does, terrific. Keep
1: going. And if it doesn't, fix it <laughs> and then keep going. Would you say that your process has changed significantly as technology has also changed? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Working on a computer has made
3: me a better self-editor, much more willing to make significant changes. I think when I worked on a typewriter, I really like clean copy. I don't like lots of pencil marks and, and you know, crossouts and stuff. So it, I had a huge disincentive for changing stuff when I was working on a typewriter because I just didn't want a really messy-looking page. If I did editing, I would start all over again and type from the start. Wow. I know this must make it sound like I'm 5 million years old. but <laughs> You are not. Um, <laughs> Far uh, from it. <laughs> yeah, and so the value of the computer, and they have limitations too, but their greatest value is the ease of moving things around, editing, and and assuring yourself that if you don't love the way it is, once you've changed it, you can change it back. I mean, a lot of times there will be a little section that for one reason or another isn't working, but I'm in love with it and I I don't really want to cut it, but I know in my heart that it's not working. I will copy it and paste it over to a new file that I mark, you know, extra pieces or come up with some some way of naming the file, which is this is stuff I'm taking out, but I don't want to really get rid of it because maybe I'll use it somehow. Mm-hmm. And I take it out. And, of course, I never put it back in. If I feel, if I've gotten to the point of thinking it's worth taking out, it's probably worth taking out. But it's it's just made it much more it's much easier to be to to edit yourself and to try things different ways without it being so labor intensive so you're much more willing to say what if i move this entire section to the beginning and when you are working on a typewriter you just don't do that it's just too much work and just seems too cumbersome and you don't do it
1: if you could offer you know, one piece of advice to aspiring long-form journalists today, what would it be?
3: Read all the work that you really love. And there is a long tradition of apprenticeship that involves basically copying what you love. And eventually you won't be copying it anymore. And, and copying is probably the wrong word, but modeling on the work you really love. And look at that work all the time. It has a lot to teach you. I sit with books that I love on my desk as I'm writing, and I can't tell you the number of times I'll flip through them looking looking for something that'll explain how to solve a problem in my writing. And, and it never fails. It always helps me. So I would say read, 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 and look at those pieces mechanically. Try to figure out how they work. And then go with inspiration because that's so important. But feel sure that you've got the mechanical tools you need to to really make it work.
1: What are some of the books on your desk right now? Well, I have very, very
3: worn out copies of a few books <laughs> that I really love. One is Great Plains by Ian Fraser, which um, I realized the other day I think I'm going to treat myself to a new copy because <laughs> this one's so wrecked. Um, I have two collections that, I, that to me are remarkable. One is called Literary Journalism, and it's edited by Mark Kramer and Norman Sims. And the other, also edited by the same people, is called The Literary Journalists. I don't know why the title very changed. similar titles, <laughs> yeah. And they're they're great collections that have wonderful work in it. There is a collection of John McPhee's work called mm-hmm. "Giving Good Weight" that I have worn
1: out. Draft number four is currently on my desk. Yeah, well,
3: <laughs> I'm I just bought it. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, slouching toward Bethlehem, Joan Didion. So the and at different times, different books will make their way onto my desk too but those are the ones that are almost always there but in addition there may be a Lillian Ross book there's uh, Mr. Personality a collection by Mark Singer um, lots of other stuff that comes and goes but they they're teaching me
1: of all of those books and essays and stories is there one in particular that you turn to the most
3: Well, I probably turn to Great Plains the most, Um, in part because—well, I'm a huge, huge fan of Ian Frazier, but also because the particular chemistry of that book, which is there's a lot of history, there's a lot of present time, there's a lot of personal rumination, is— um, is done so well and reflects a lot of what i 'm often trying to balance, particularly telling history but also staying the present times and you know he and I are very different writers, but it it's it doesn 't matter it 's the way the book is built and just writing reading sentences that he 's written that I just love um it it 's I may not model my sentence on his sentence, but I'm always reminded of, oh, you can do this with language, or you can take this tone. Um, And I I just rely on that book a lot, Uh, and that's why I think I am going to treat myself to a fresh copy, because it's it's getting kind of crispy.
0: That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks to Susan Orlean for coming in on this snowy afternoon, and to Kim Masters for calling in from sunny California. Please check out all the great work we've got up at cjr.org, and we'll see you next week.